Hello everyone and welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I'm the Grumpy Surfer and your host Ads Lyson. Before we go anywhere today, a little bit of a sponsor thing from Ombi Surf. So if you want to get 10% off any of the Ombi online surfing programs, go to Ombi, O-M-B-E dot co forward slash ref forward slash grumpy surfer to get 10% off any of the Ombi programs on their website. Like I said in previous podcasts, I've been using Ombi now for eight to nine months and I repeatedly go back and do the 12-week program and it's improved my surfing considerably. I've been on a couple of surf trips now, Portugal and Guam, and I've been using the Ombi techniques and it's amazing. It's made me relax. My turns have been on the rail a lot more and I'm enjoying my surfing a whole lot more. So get yourself involved with that one or go and have a look on Instagram or Facebook or just go online and search for Ombi Surf. This week's podcast guest is pretty inspiration, if I'm perfectly honest. Uh, she was involved with a car accident a few years ago and she lost her leg below her right knee. As a result of this she was looking for something that she would like to get into as an amputee and got into surfing and is now on the Adaptive Surfing GB surf team. So please enjoy my conversation with Zoe Smith. Zoe Smith welcome to the podcast. Thank you. A few questions then for you. How are you? Where are you? And what have you done today? Um, I'm at home in uh, Dorset. Um, what have I done today? Not much. Um, I've got my dad coming around later, so I did a little bit of tidying up. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm good. Um, I'm really good. I'm off to uh, Barbados on Monday, so I'm looking forward to that. Oh, nice. What are you doing out there? Uh, it's actually like a kind of rescheduled um, COVID holiday, um, but I'm hoping to, to score a few uh, waves. Uh, I think Freight's Bay's quite a nice little gentle um, breakdown on the south. So I've reached out to a couple of um, people uh, that I've spotted on Instagram. I'm hoping to sort of team up with them and just maybe get two or three or ten um, <laughs> surfing when I'm there. I'm supposed to be chilling out, but I'll see. I'll wait and see what happens. Instagram's an amazing thing for something like that, isn't it? I've been on a few trips over the last uh, sort of like 18 months and I've tapped a few people out into the different locations I've been to because I, I don't really know the area that well and just, you know, try to get some some local knowledge from them. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty cool for stuff like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you know, and it's it's... You can sort of work out before you get there which is the places, you know, which the companies that are the most popular, safest, and it, it's really, especially for an adaptive surfer, that's really important to sort of find your feet if you like before you uh, before you sort of break out into asking a surf school that may or may not be comfortable having you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think surfing these days there is no there is no such thing as a secret spot. I mean, there are secret secret spots <laughs> some places that I surf, which I'll never elaborate on too much. Um, but I think the majority of places have been found these days and, you know, mm. photographs and, and the media have kind of put them on that pedestal. And 
surfing is it has grown so much over the last two years especially covid because it's an outdoor sport that it, it's the, the, there is no local spots anymore so i think yeah. people can talk about it a little bit more widely yeah yeah sure you were you alluded to there and this is why we are talking on the podcast about uh, you being an adaptive surfer um, so can you just just elaborate for the uh, listeners a little bit on what happened to you and um, how you actually got into surfing in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was a passenger in a car accident and I actually had my, um, I'd been for a run. My friend drove down the road and just said, oh, you know, we're going out, it was Friday night, jump in. And uh I had my feet up on the dashboard, so I believe that I probably had both of my feet on the dashboard, but at the time when we realised that we were about to have an accident, I, being right-handed, I probably moved my right foot off the um, off the dashboard sooner than the left. And basically, this guy um, was coming in the opposite direction, National Speed Limit Road, uh, just turned randomly in the middle of the road in front of us. So we, we hit him side on, there's absolutely nothing that we could do. So the combined impact of like 120 miles an hour. And then the airbag um, obviously detonated and it took with it most of my leg. Um, so when I went into the hospital, they said it was like an aviation injury in terms of the impact that you would have from underneath. Um, it's, it's such a strong force. It goes off at like 250 miles an hour and I was really lucky actually to survive because quite often what happens when you have your feet up on the dashboard is that it brings your knees together and as you come forward to we're in the motion of the car your knee or knee will impale your head um my knee actually dislocated on the impact so my knee my leg sort of bent backwards if you like which probably did save me um, and my pelvis so I was uh, overall I was lucky but obviously ultimately I lost my left leg below the knee with some pretty extensive um, sciatic nerve damage above the uh, above the knee which means that my thigh is um, has some profound weakness so I'm a um, an amputee surfer yeah uh, which leg was it left leg you say yeah left leg yeah how how did you I say, how did you feel about that? How do you feel about that now with the idea that people do stuff like that? Or you see, you must be in cars these days where you see people, especially in the summer, you know, putting their feet up out the windows and and yeah. and putting their feet up onto the dashboard. My little girl is is really guilty for this and mm. it, it, it kills me. If I'm, if I'm perfectly honest, anything to do with knees, because I've had some knee injuries and, and surgeries mm in the past anything to do with knees whether it's watching rugby on the tv or or people's knees wobbling or when i'm watching people do stuff oh, it makes yeah. me cringe so much so it must have that same sort of like impact on you too yeah for sure i cannot bear it when i see somebody injure their leg or like you know when people post those horror videos of footballers i can't i can't stomach any of it um I, I wish that there was a little bit more um, about sort of out there to the public about the dangers of traveling with your feet on the board. Um, and I've done a little bit of um, 
I suppose collaboration if you like with a local fire station and did a little bit of stuff through them but yeah it needs to be a bit more mainstream I think that if you do have an accident and your feet are on the dashboard you are probably at as much at risk in some ways as you are if you don't have your um, seatbelt on you know it will that it can cause you a catastrophic injury and the, the truth is if I'd had both of my feet on the floor I probably would have come away with some pretty nasty whiplash but as it is I had kind of um, polytrauma to the whole left hand side of my body which was caused from 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 the way I was sat. It's one of those injuries as well that I guess from your point of view now because it's happened to you you're kind of like focused on it a touch yeah. so mm. do you notice it a lot more with you must have done research on it like how, how many people actually get injured through accidents have you done any research into it or anything uh no not really because I, I kind of not so much somebody that like I don't really linger too much on the whole um the whole mechanism of injury um I think you know, I'm, I'm hyper aware of when I see somebody like on a motorway with their feet up on a dashboard and I just think, you know, it, it, like you say, it makes me frustrated because I know the risks. But um, no, I don't I don't try and linger on it too much. I mean, I kind of um, I've always taken the, the mindset that the accident was the fault of the driver that, you know, caused the caused the uh, in the accident at the end of the day. Um, and just been conscious of telling people that I speak to, I always, always say how it happened. I don't just sort of say I was in a car accident. I always make a point of saying that my feet were on the dashboard because that's for me the best way that I can get that kind of message across. Um, you know, don't sit with your feet on the dashboard. <laughs> um, but no, I haven't looked into it a huge amount. I've got to be honest with you, just because it's just one of those, it's kind of like one of those things that like if I, if I concentrate on it too much, it'll probably be on my mind a lot more than I want it to be. Do you find talking about it really kind of helps you with the mental aspect of it? Because obviously, you know, you've lost one of, um, you know, the bottom half of one of your limbs. Um, it, it must be something that plays on your mind a, a little bit. Or are you just one of these people that's like, OK, it's happened. I'm just going to get on with my life and uh, and and deal with the difficulties and then adapt to it a little bit? Um, yeah, so I lost my leg in 2015 and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I had a couple of years where, where I was, was pretty miserable. Um, I think for me more so than like, I did, I never really struggled with like an ongoing trauma from the way that it happened. Um, I, you know like if very similar situations present themselves when I'm driving or as a passenger I feel slightly more anxious than I probably would have done but overall I think the process for me like emotionally of losing a leg was much more tied up in the pain um I had a quite a few reconstructive surgeries to try and I, you know I really didn't want to lose my leg basically so I had a number of surgeries over and over to try and save it and it was um it was you know it was so painful and a lot of that that was what kind of impacted me on a day-to-day -day basis I think was kind of um you know pain just encroaches onto every aspect of your life you can't really do anything without feeling pain 
and trying to communicate that to other people is really hard and actually it's bloody boring for other people to listen to so you kind of become the most boring person in the room and and for me at that point in my life by far the most disabled as well you know I'd never met anybody that was an amputee um I'd just finished a sports science degree I've been traveling the world like super athletic and then all of a sudden I was on crutches and sometimes in a wheelchair so I had a couple of years where I really really struggled against that and also kind of I felt like I'd lost in some ways my identity and also like you know to be perfectly honest as a as a girl I was worried that I was going to be like super unattractive and, and you know that whole there's a lot that goes with it right um it's not just kind of the trauma of loss of a limb it's it's so multifactorial that whole process but then um I had a operation and I was actually um at the Nuffield Orthopaedic which is like a special hospital and they actually put me on um a, a set of painkillers that kind of the first time got to grips of the pain and although I wasn't actually physically in a better position I could I wasn't in so much pain and I started to rebuild my life you know I went back to work um and just started finding that I was able to do more social stuff and as for me that part of my life improved my mental health improved and then I was much more able to deal with the you know the physical aspects of my injury um and now like sort of seven years later to be honest I am probably one of those people that doesn't you know my, I don't think about my leg a lot it doesn't define me as a person I certainly don't um talk about it often or kind of you know I mean ask any amputee if you're going to have an amputation it's probably the best one still got a knee I can still do stuff um so I feel like I you know I really feel like I've, I've moved on I've got past it but there's always little things that will kind of present themselves like um just recently I've hurt my arm surfing I've like ruptured two tendons and need to have surgery and that actually you know although I wasn't aware of it, kind of made me go, whoa, hang on. <laughs> and I had some of those feelings come back again of like an injury that will never, ever heal and trying to separate that from the wrist injury from the leg and being like, okay, just because it hasn't healed doesn't mean that I'm going to end up without an arm. <laughs> but there are, there must be, you know, there's always going to be like a bit of residual stuff that sometimes presents itself when you're least expecting it. But overall, no, I'm kind of a... Um, I'm a positive person with like an optimistic outlook on life and I was before. So that's, I think it's, it's quite important really to, to have that, that mental aptitude as well, because it's, it can be quite easy to get suckered into that dark place in your mind and, and get pulled into it. And I, I've got plenty of my friends that I, you know, I've, I've been away with and, and they've got hurt, injured and they've kind of dwelled on it a little bit. And for me, because I'm I'm quite a, a strong-willed person anyway, um, I'm I'm quite happy with my 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 own person. Um, I'm happy with my my own company. Anything yeah. that ever really happens to me, kind of just you know, it's like water off a duck's back. Yeah. Um, but it's taken me a very very long time to learn, and especially sort of like you know, I I, I turned forty last year, 
probably the last few years to actually start realizing and, and empathize with um with, with people you know i've got five or six friends that have had uh, amputees now and to, to kind of empathize with them a little bit and especially people that have got um, non-visible injuries like ptsd for instance yeah. i'm like well can't you just like deal with it and get over it that's how i used to be where now yeah. um I, i've got to the point in my life where i've gone away and done courses and to kind of see the triggers uh, and the reactions and to pick things up from for myself um mm. to be able to deal with that but from doing that i've also been able to understand slowly how things affect different people and and the strength of minds different different people have yeah um, and uh you know i spoke to mark umrod um a, a while back and he was talking about phantom pain as well especially when mm. um about when you've been an amputee uh saying that he he used to feel like his arm and um, and his legs, he, he could feel pain like in his feet and obviously the, mm. they're, they're not there. Um, but trying to explain that to somebody that hasn't is not in that situation um, can be quite, uh, I guess you can see yourself becoming quite negative and, uh, and, yeah. and, and sort of like being down on people all the time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Did you uh, did you ever suffer from uh, from phantom pain as well? Um, so I had my, uh, leg amputated under an epidural, which sounds pretty, um, hardcore cause it is. <laughs> and, uh, I, that I had that done, especially for, um, the prevention or the management, if you like, possible phantom pain. So the way it was explained to me was that if you go in and you have, um, so some people like Mark would be unlucky kind of, you know, they have a injury and whether or not it's a traumatic sort of, you know, explosion blows everything off. Sometimes people in that situation won't have phantom limb because prior to the amputation, there wasn't pain. Um, so because they tried to uh, save my leg, I would have had a higher chance of having phantom limb pain because my brain already went into that operation thinking this left leg is excruciating um so they then try and approach that with like an epidural so that you're although you're sedated your brain is going hang on a minute um this leg is leaving the building sort of thing so it, it can reset whereas if you go in with a uh, very badly broken injured leg for an amputation and then you're put to sleep you wake up and your brain hasn't made hasn't made that you know journey with you does that make sense mm -hmm. So that was the uh, rationale with the um, epidural. And so what I had was a whole load of like phantom sort of sensation, really, or just kind of where your mind just doesn't have a bloody clue what's going on. So I remember like lying in bed for the first couple of days and I kept feeling like I was falling off the bed. Right. Um, and that's because I didn't have a heel. So I'd sort of make a move and suddenly be like, whoa. And it was really kind of, um, you know, it's like kind of feeling of like going down a roller coaster where your 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 equilibrium is so shot from from losing a limb. Um, I had, I still get phantom pain, if you could call it pain sensation. Definitely when it's cold, um, I didn't have any uh, blood circulation in my leg when I just before I lost it. 
and one of the, the profound feelings from that was just it was freezing all the time it was black and purple so if I'm really cold I can feel that and will almost go to rub my prosthetic foot but of course there's nothing there um I did take kind of the standard um painkillers if you like for nerve phantom pain but I it wasn't something that I struggled with sometimes phantom pain um in some people's experiences will be a lot to do with mindset um some people will just unfortunately suffer with phantom pain and then other people you're more predisposed to suffer with phantom pain if you're suffering with um some form of depression or anxiety and uh that's the case for all kind of ongoing phantom sensations if i'm stressed out my leg will hurt um if i'm really really tired or anxious i will feel issues within my leg that that, that don't happen when i'm having a really great day i think it's uh, like anything if you've got something wrong it'll it'll be like a flashing red flag when you when you're down kind of thing so after all this happened and you've gone home how did you slowly put your life back together? Did you find a, a, an outlet? You know, I know surfing came a little bit later uh, yeah. that, that you found, but what were, you, what were your outlets prior to finding surfing that you, you got involved with to almost kind of get your life back to normal again? Uh, well, I don't know if you've ever heard of a company called Casualty Resources. Right, okay. Uh, they're run by a guy called Ollie Hancock, who is a congenital um, below elbow amputee. And um, I met Ollie at a um, charity event for amputees. And he was like, oh, all right, mate, come and have a talk to me about this, um, about my business. So I um, I spoke to Ollie and I, it had been like a couple of years then post-amputation. Because I, uh, so I was a bit more, bit more confident on my feet. I wasn't in so much pain. And Ollie's business, Casualty Resources, they are, um, they work for basically militaries around the world, Europe, sort of Sp um, Sweden, uh, the, the Dutch Navy. We, we went to the States. We go all over Germany, um, and he runs. A group of amputees some of them are ex-military but not all of them not all of us are ex-military um, and we basically do trauma training for the military so um, medical exercises where the guys need to work on real you know as, as lifelike as possible so I joined um, casualty resources in 2017 and I mean like just what an experience like you know you've got um, Josh Bodgie, a triple amputee from Afghan, um, not a care in the world kind of guy. Um, and then you've got Stewie Pearson, who um, is above knee, amputee. Um, Kajaki, his favourite film, which goes on and on and on about nonstop. And uh, we've all like worked together and that was a, quite a big kind of turning point because none of those guys, that, you know, being an amputee makes absolutely, it's, you know they they make it the best of it and go out there and actually help other people as a result of it as well um and I got to travel the world with them and and have just the best banter and a really great time so 
that was kind of really empowering as well. Um, not just as an amputee, but as a female to go out and do that. Um, and that was a kind of a turning point. It presented to me new opportunities that I didn't think would be possible and wouldn't have been possible pre-amputation. Um, and I started to get fitter and stronger. And then, you know, during lockdown is when I started to kind of think what would, you know, what sports and stuff would I like to do that um, I've always been interested in and living near the coast and um, kind of a person that likes the water, bodyboarding and stuff. I thought, oh, I'll have a look at surfing. <laughs> well, you've definitely chosen the right fickle place to start surfing down in Bournemouth Pier. Yeah, for sure. It's a horrible place. <laughs> so how did you get introduced into it? Did you just go down and, and, and grab a board or just get involved with the programme? How, how did you get involved with um, surfing itself? Yeah, so I, once again, I was just uh, bored in uh, lockdown and went um, onto the went online, basically. And I was trying to work out whether or not there was any kind of surfing amputee community you know sadly um really isn't that well you know for an amputee who likes surfing I've always sort of followed WSL and had an interest I had no idea that there was an adaptive surfing community especially as one of the head coaches for the you know for the England team lives in my hometown uh, <laughs> so I didn't have any idea um and then I found um this uh, guy called Pegleg uh, Bennett on um, line and was watching him surfing like ridiculous like Nazare and um, you know big wave surfings you know what how he can't surely he can't be an amputee um, and then I found sort of you know dug into it deeper and found the England adaptive team and I reached out to Peg and Melissa Reed who's um, the sightless surfer and um triple world champion for England for the visually impaired and they were like look just you know maybe just try the wave in Bristol go down there and you know grab a board and do a couple of beginner lessons and just see how you go so um bearing in mind at that point I didn't have a waterproof prosthetic or anything so it makes an unbelievable difference to how well you can move in the water when you're dragging an anchor behind you basically so I went down to the wave and did a couple of lessons. I'd literally been there a little bit of time and somebody tapped me up and was like, oh, would you be interested in sort of getting involved in the um, England adaptive side of it, you know, train with us. We've actually got a couple of comps coming up. And if you represent your country, we get points on the door anyway. So, you know, how do you fancy it? I was like, yeah, you know, obviously I really wanted to do it. But at that point, I was still totally shocking. And, um, yeah, so I just got my head down, really. I went to um, a company called Dorset Orthopaedics, and although it's still in the making, we're trying to get a leg for me that will um, work, basically, in all conditions. Um, and so by the time I got to California, I had some sort of prosthetic, which I could at least pop up in. And then... Um, yeah, then I ended up coming fifth in the world, which was pretty cool, considering I was still pretty, you know, still pretty green then. I was uh, <laughs> very new. It's a pretty of a steep learning curve from going to the way from having a couple of lessons and saying, uh, do you fancy representing your country? And I'm like, hang on a minute. 
Yeah. I can't, I can't even stand up properly yet, let alone turn. Yeah, that's the beauty of adaptive sport. So, so when I when I got there, they kind of, um, you know, to be fair, I was a toe dipper. If you if you go along with the team, you get a certain amount of points. But I was like, I'm not having that. I want to go and do as well as I can do. I want to be. Um, want to make sure that I, you know, surf well, do myself and the rest of the guys proud. So I trained like a maniac from from that point really just sort of surfing four five times a week um I went over to Portugal and surfed as the Algarve surf school there and um put a week in Lanzarote uh we surfed obviously in California so by the time I got there um you know I was able I was popping up turning doing bits and pieces I was certainly able to surf a hell of a lot better than I had done a few months earlier and um you know I was lucky that I had really great coaches Peg who I spotted on Instagram became my coach and um yeah I was able to sort of suck up some of that uh, knowledge as well so um yeah it was a very quick <laughs> process from yeah pottering around on my beginner lesson on a nine foot foamy to out back in you know Pismo California with the sharks <laughs> well i suppose there's a bit of a saving grace there as well isn't there i mean you you were probably more worried about like catching the waves over there than what's underneath you really yeah yeah for sure i mean we just uh we ended up sort of saying you know how many the, the half of the half of the guy there's a lot of guys there and that competing that have already that have actually had their shark attack victims so we were like yeah they will they'll get them first anyway <laughs> old friend We'll be yep. right. Well, if you've got a load of bodyboarders in there, I used to call them shark biscuits, so you're safe. <laughs> yeah, well, there was a bodyboarder killed up the road from where the comp was on Christmas Eve. Well, that's uh, got a sour note on that joke, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, thanks to you and your biscuit joke. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. That's what I'm here for, right? <laughs> yeah. So what are you doing all of this surfing and getting better? Um, I, I guess when I listen to podcasts, you don't really hear about like the background stuff from uh, from individuals. So, you know, how did you how did you support yourself? And were you were you working after all this, or were you just still were you getting paid from doing the um, the sort of like the injury person yeah. on the battlefield stuff, and um, or, or were you getting paid and sponsored as soon as you know, you got picked up by England Surfing for Adaptive Surfing. No, um, I would love to be sponsored, but um, sadly, um, I'm not. And I've missed I missed the cutoff for some of the um, grants and stuff. So uh, I'm I'm hoping that some of that comes through soon because it certainly would be, you know, it is beneficial. Um, Personally, I have my own um, business, which is sort of property development and um, financial sort of advice around properties that I got into um, shortly after I lost my leg. Um, and that is my source of income. Uh, I've got a um, good friend of mine who works for me. So when I go away, she sort of takes care of stuff, but then it's kind of all hands on deck when I get back. Um, so that's kind of 
you know, this year is entirely self-funded, which is pretty hardcore because there's a lot of traveling and, um, you know, sort of stuff basically that gets expensive when you're away surfing, you know? Um, so yeah, hopefully some of that sponsorship and funding starts coming through. There is a, there is a lack of that sort of support really full stop for most of our adaptive surfers. I mean, the England adaptive team is the most successful English surfing team to date. We're ranked seven in the world when you sort of consider that's behind, you know, Hawaii and the US and Brazil. Uh, to, for us guys to be up at seventh is a real achievement. But even um, people like Melissa, who is our, you know, she's a triple world champion, the first one we've ever got. Um, is still just about getting funding sort of dripping through this year on the third winning the world so yeah we need you know stuff like this is really essential and great for us because it raises the profile of adaptive surfing which hopefully will encourage not only other people to come through but also more support for us as a, as a whole. I always find this conversation quite interesting um, because as a nation we're quite a small country compared mm -hmm. to like the Americas, the Brazils, you know, the, the countries that you that you've just mentioned. So they have quite big funding streams that they're able to to push money into to to develop yeah. to develop their programs. So when their athletes go to the Olympics, World Championships and all that sort of thing, um, that they're able to to basically pay their athletes paths all the way through. Now bearing in mind that surfing has just been in the in the Olympics recently um, and I can use the comparison of a, of a friend of mine who's a, a judo Olympian uh, and a Commonwealth gold medalist. And he's uh, just tried to um, com uh, tried to qualify for the last Olympics, but the, the, the up and coming Commonwealth Games. A previous podcast guest called uh, Chris Sherrington. And believe it or not, even though like he's like high level, high level guy in his field, he's still paying out of his own pocket to travel to different countries, different clubs to to train and uh, and, and get his training in to compete. Uh, yeah. along, along with, you know, like you're saying, the British surfers, I know Welsh, Scottish, English yeah. surfers that have to dip into their own pocket to be able to com compete in their WQSs, to qualify yeah. for the for the WSL events. Yeah. And that they're still putting their their hand in their pocket, even though they're representing their country. There just isn't funding being pushed into something like that. Because let's be honest, surfing isn't a core sport. It's not football. It's not rugby. It, it, it's nothing like that. So I think until you get individuals that are, you know, on let's go super extreme, like your Kelly Slaters, like your Steph Gilmore's and your Chris Moore's that have done everything themselves to get themselves there. And then they're in that public eye and say, look, I'm an English British surfer. Yeah. I don't think any of that funding is really going to come out. And I, and it's really from a passionate surfer and I enjoy sport from my perspective, look from an outsider looking in, it, it sometimes is quite disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, it certainly limits the field, doesn't it? You know, if you can't afford to fly to California to compete, you're never going to be a world champion. Um, and, you know, 
you know yourself like with surfing you have to be able to afford to it's a sport that unless you are blessed enough to grow up on the beach at pipeline you have to travel a little bit you know it's flat at the moment it's flat all week unless you have the week off you've got to travel somewhere to surf um and then you need time you need petrol money at the moment which is like a joke um and you need a board and, and a wetsuit for different conditions and there's like anything you need to put your own money into it but especially if you're trying to compete and you're trying to you know like we're, we're going to Hawaii in June that's not a cheap flight and it's definitely not a cheap trip um it's your holiday as opposed to just uh you know it's your you know it's the best holiday it's a holiday of a lifetime isn't it to go to Hawaii let alone if you're going to California a few months later sort of thing so yeah it's um not cheap and on top of that if you are an amputee at the moment um you do not get self-fund you do not get nh funded prosthetics that are waterproof you might be lucky enough to get a one like peg surf some which i mean he's surfed since he was a kid you know he's um probably one of the best well he is one of the best amputee surfers in the world but um and he has been for a long time He's probably one of the best surfers in the country, full stop, let alone an amputee. Um, he can surf on a plastic prosthetic with two little holes at the back that, you know, no ankle, absolutely nothing at all. Whereas I, um, a slightly shorter limbed amputee, which means I've got less, slightly less balance and I'm not anywhere near as good a surfer as him. So I need an ankle that can have some flexion otherwise I can't you know I can't I'm basically doing a pistol squat on my back leg whilst I'm surfing which is nails um so I had to go I went to the went to my limb center and unfortunately there just isn't the funding available so I ended up self-funding a leg and that leg the, the socket with a pin which will hold the leg on a cuff which will allow the the sleeve to stay on my leg when I'm surfing the yada 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 is 10,000 plus pounds and there's no prosthetic in the world that will truly resist constant saltwater erosion so you're looking at that being replaced every three years you're then narrowing down that bracket of people who are able to you know to compete within the competition with the prosthetic so then you start looking at people that are competing that don't actually have a prosthetic. There was a girl that surfed in the comp for Italy that just surfed on her residual limb. Um, whether that's financial or just from a mobility choice, I don't know. But there's a lot that goes into adaptive surfing that you know can require uh, you know additional money. Um, there are grants out there that do like an OSA funding kind of package that um, at the moment I haven't, you know, I'm, I'm not there yet. I think being an amputee as well, it's such a individualistic injury as well. No, it's like, let's lose it. Let's use a cheesy cliche of no wave is the same. Uh, yeah. no, no amputation is the same. No. Uh, you know, it's shorter, longer. So mm -hmm. it's not like you can mass produce something that's going to fit somebody of a certain height. You know, it, it, it's very different and, and, and an, an individual thing as well. So I can imagine it can be quite frustrating. I mean, like, let, let's be honest, £10,000 to the, the mass majority of the population is like, you know, a considerable amount of money. And I, 
what do they do payment plans for that maybe that you can pay monthly over like a 10-year period or you know the grants and stuff that you can probably potentially get a far and few between so i guess that could be i guess from from your point of view can be quite a frustrating thing as well considering you wanted you're passionate about something but you're not able to fulfill your full potential because of money yeah exactly that's always going to be the problem with a lot of um you know a huge amount of disabled sport um like adaptive surfing so you know melissa she is impaired so she can't drive but and you know so she needs to get to the beach to surf she needs somebody to drive her there and then in an ideal world somebody to go out into the surf with her and call her into waves all of that again you know is it's it's financial hardship and for me i just um was lucky enough that i just went on a, a ticket to ride trip to sri lanka and it's my first time of surfing without a wetsuit on and um so i went, I went with my normal um normal prosthetic and paddled out it was a reef break so limited sort of white water impact paddled into uh the first wave in a set missed it and then i'd sort of found you know i was in the impact zone the second wave was a much better wave and basically just nailed me and as it was rolling me you know towards the beach i was conscious of the fact that the water as it was rushing through me had actually got inside the sleeve which you wear on on your actual skin and had pulled the prosthetic off from the thigh so although the sleeve was still attached the metal work to the leg none of it was attached to me so I'm just barreling <laughs> through this white water I'm trying to hold on to my 10,000 pound prosthetic <laughs> um, definitely puts like an extra sort of uh, stress to it and then for three days in Sri Lanka I couldn't surf because that would happen every single time I went into the water so I was suddenly aware of the fact that the, one of the key factors that's holding my limb on is, is a 5'4 wetsuit. And I don't want to wear a 5'4 wetsuit in Sri Lanka. I hadn't brought one. There's no, you know, nobody in their right mind would sell one. So we ended up having to get this like tuk-tuk driver to drive the whole length and breadth of Sri Lanka and pick up a one mil sort of uh, scuba suit, if you like, and I had to wear that in Sri Lanka to try and help keep my leg on. Um, I, bet, I, bet, I bet that was nice and cold for you, wasn't it? Yeah, so yeah, it was really nice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing like surfing in twenty-nine degree water and thirty degree heat in a in a wetsuit. Yeah, people thought I was absolutely bloody mad. Like they were out in the break, like all right, there, love, <laughs> in your wetsuit. Um, but so again, you know, I've come back and I've got, had to go to my prosthetic team and say, okay, so this, the ankle was, you know, the ankle sort of flexion was all right. I'm wearing a wetsuit boot on the plastic foot because I don't get any traction on my board. But the main thing is, is my legs falling off. So now I need a cuff, which attaches to the knee and then kind of goes up. So it's constant work and changing because like you say, no wave is different no wave is the same you know no, the weather changes every you know there's so many factors for us as surfers that you're 
you're making these minor changes and if you are working with you know the same mechanics over and over again eventually at some point some of that isn't going to work and at other times it's going to come come good for you so it's a problem when you're going from hawaii to you know bournemouth condition <laughs> yeah yeah it's not exactly the same conditions not always the same no yeah. let's talk about boards a little bit so um do you find that you're having to ride different equipment to other people to cater for uh for your for your um for your prosthetic or are you just surfing the the same sort of equipment the same boards as uh, as other people and just adapting to it uh yeah i mean so i pop up probably slightly slower um especially at the moment because of my wrist injury so i kind of prefer like a i'm i'm a mid-length surfer kind of if you like um a, vo a board of high volume um suits me better because i'm just like, a little bit slower and then um the one of the problems that i have sort of with like top to bottom surfing for example is that my my left leg is um sort of only i say like that much longer than my knee and then the rest of it's all prosthetic so the actual prosthetic itself weighs a few pounds whereas you know a normal leg will probably weigh double um and that's an automatically your weight distribution is shot so trying to surf with a lot of speed becomes a problem because you haven't gotten you, you can't be heavy on your front foot uh so my pop-up i almost need to pop up higher up on the board and then of course your turning capacity with like you know compression and extension is limited with limited flexion in your knee so i have just been to that bristol um uh, did you see that the skate sort of shaper expo yeah the bristol on? surfboard expo yeah yeah went to that and the guys at phoenix surfboards in bristol um in the process of making me a board so it's going to be a seven uh, a 610 um and it's gonna have just that little bit of a kind of um balance sort of tip towards the front if you like so that's just got a little bit more time for me with my foot the problem with a prosthetic is, as you know, like foot positioning is just about everything anyway. And it's quite hard when you don't have any ankle um, rotation. Sometimes my foot can sort of be placed just angled slightly off and that help, that causes a bit of issue as well. So this is going to be the first board where it's kind of made for me. At the moment, I'm just surfing like a Mick Fanning soft top performance board, which is like for the conditions around here as well like you know two three foot surf it's i don't need a short board it would be nicer to have a shorter one at the wave um you know like for the comps there for more dynamic turns and stuff but the mid fanning's you know my quiver is slowly building have you have you tried any of the other boards uh, that you can get through the purchase of your uh, ticket at the wave uh, no, I haven't actually. Mainly just because if I want to look like a dick, I'll try and probably do it. <laughs> uh, where I don't have to pay privilege. Um, I, I would be able to pick up a few boards, like from people that I go surfing with and stuff. I mean, I've you know, I'm I'm happy to try anything, but I think when I go to the wave, I normally just kind of want to. I've got a normally I've got like a goal, 
and I kind of just try and stick to it and do my training there specifically because when you've only got 50 minutes and you're going to spend 45 of them nose diving getting used to a new board I just can't I can't, <laughs> I can't be doing it <laughs> yeah I've always I mean no that no disrespect to the way but I find I find it quite quite a novelty um, mm. for, for for me to drive from where I live up there it's probably the same as you is and yeah. and for the price of um how much it is is you know it's like 120 quid plus and that's that's per session as well um it's a great facility to be able to train on uh, if you have that ability to do that whether it's part of like the the gb teams or you're you're part of another team that can go up there and uh, mm -hmm. and, and utilize that um i can definitely see it as like an amazing training tool but um yeah maybe once every six months is is probably my uh my my go-to i mean i i live i'm quite fortunate really because i live an hour away from what i would call the north coast which is uh north devon and yeah. then uh, i can go to the south coast i can surf locally here which is five minutes down the road but it's really really fickle um, yeah. but if i wanted like a you know a decent south coast wave like down towards plymouth way is like 50 minutes so yeah I, i'm quite i'm quite lucky in a way where i'm able to i've got i've got lots of different sort of areas that i can that i can tap into and um and that's what i think sometimes like i remember going to the wave and i was sat there uh it was when it first reopened after covid and there was a couple of guys in there and they were like local so local to the wave is probably like 10 20 minutes away from from a local decent break mm. um and they'd been there every single day for like maybe a week two weeks and i was like oh my god like have you got money trees growing in your back garden or something you know but yeah um, i can definitely i can definitely see the advantages of uh of being able to get up there yeah i mean the wave is um you know you can't replace ocean surfing obviously but the wave it's about 60 quid i think for a session i get a discount um as a surfing england athlete which is brilliant um half price really um I, you know people some of the benefits are the lineup you, you get in an, an hour at the wave you you should get yourself a solid 10 waves so you can do um you know if you go there with like a training plan you should be able to execute it if you if you're on you're working hard uh so it's an excellent training facility for like disabled surfers or um you know like the wave project and stuff it's it's it offers an extra layer of like when i first started out i wasn't scared when i went to the wave um and probably pushed myself harder and then when i went to the ocean i was like what this is different you know because there's this elements here that I, and i couldn't i was standing up at the wave and wasn't able to stand up in the sea um so i i you i like inter intermix them if, I, if I'm finding that I'm finding like consistently struggling with one part of my surfing, a couple of sessions at the wave can actually really narrow that out for me. Um, and it's a nice vibe, you know, you can sit and have a drink <laughs> straight off. But yeah, I know what you mean. Like it's, uh, you know, you need to, you need to be able to support. It, it sounds like I'm slagging it off quite a lot. I'm, I'm anything but that. I think if I lived, uh, if I lived a little bit closer to it, um, I'd probably definitely utilize it a little bit more, but 
you know, okay, I guess my point is that because I live a lot closer to, to the ocean than I do there, um, I find, you know, going to the, and when the conditions are right, going to the ocean and getting into amongst, in amongst that, as opposed to going to somewhere that's artificial. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I've got a lot of people that I know that regularly go up there and they drive from Cornwall as well, which is mental because it's like, like nearly a three hour drive. And I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, I must admit, like the Cornwall, like when we go, when we go with some of the England team, like the, the Cornwall people will come down, but they, uh, yeah, they want, they want to be like on the expert barrels to do that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, you want to go up there to set, get onto one of them settings that absolutely destroy your board when you get wiped out as well. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that's brilliant about having like a soft top is when it takes chunks out, you don't mind. <laughs> well, those McFanning models are amazing. A friend of mine who's a surf coach down in uh, Gwythian, he, um, I borrowed one off him and uh, it was brilliant. It was only like, you know, probably what you were saying, like three to four foot, um, mm -hmm. like on a, like a mid to high tide. And it was brilliant. It was, it was shaped enough on the bottom to be able to, you know, do the turns that you wanted to, but it yeah. had enough volume in it as well to get into, you know, any of the rolling swell before it peaked, which was, which is brilliant. Yeah. And what you want, right? You want to get into those waves uh, yeah. early so you can enjoy what you're doing. Exactly. That's so super important for me to be able to get into a wave early to take a little bit more time to then sort of drop down and make a bottom turn. I need to just have that little bit extra time. And those Mick Fanning boards are really good for that. It feels they're so stable. You feel like you're on a, you know, eight nine foot huge thing when you when you come up, and they hold a rail really nice as well. So yeah, I'm I'm a fan of them. What other uh, what other projects have you got coming up at the moment? You mentioned you're going away to Barbados. Have you got anything coming up with the uh, surfing GB team? Yeah, so we we've got the first leg of I think the inaugural world adaptive tour which is in um queens waikiki hawaii in uh first week in june so there's a group of us going over to that um and then um hopefully uh kind of depends on the condition of my wrist i'll be over to the us open in september and the supergirl pro and then uh we also have the uh the english competition which is open to all international surfers and that's at the wave in on the 7th of july oh nice what are, we, what are your main goals then for these next six months to year? have you got any goals that you've set yourself yeah i would like to um i would like to medal at the world championships this year uh or if nothing else just surf the best i can surf but i would like to come away with a medal um, and I would certainly like to be um, English number one, but in uh, in the uh, English competition in July, that would be my goal. That's at the wave. Um, hopefully, people from from all over the adaptive world tour will come down and have a go. It's also sort of back to back with the Welsh, uh, so there's there's a bit for them to come across for. Uh, I know I know a few people that are coming, so fingers crossed that would be that would be a good day. Amazing! I have every faith that you're going to do really, really well in that. <laughs> Cheers. Well, Zoe Smith, it's been absolutely amazing talking to you, and uh, thank you very much for your stories and opening up. No, yeah, thanks for having me. It's it's, uh, it's great to come on and do something like this. It's uh, and you know 
thanks for sort of supporting the adaptive surfing community. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, Zoe. Yes, mate.